it's, it's a fascinating book to read, the book of Esther. And it, it's not all that long, only ten chapters. The last chapter is hardly a chapter. It's only a few verses. But it's a very interesting story. And as we look at this story, first of all, it is a true narrative. It isn't just a fairy tale. It's a true story that took place many years ago. And it's about the young woman named Esther, who is a young, virtuous Jewish woman who became the queen of Persia. At that time, the most powerful nation on earth. And she became the queen. And God allowed her to become the queen to be able to spare the nation of Israel from extinction. They were doomed to be utterly destroyed and wiped off the earth. And Esther stood in, risked her life as the queen, and was able to help rescue the Jewish nation. That's really the book in a summary, but the plot is exciting. I didn't even get into that. But this morning as we look at this, I wanted to just give you some information that will help you to be able to better understand this. I put my chart up here. This is my chart of the kings. And I know if you're way in the back, you probably can't see it very good. And, but you can come up later and have a closer look. But let me just describe what's taking place. Back here we have King Saul, the first king of Israel, King David, King Solomon. Then the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom and the, it, it was a wicked bunch of kings. And they, they eventually just got so wicked that God sent them into Assyria in captivity. The southern kingdom were a little bit better. If you come closer, you can see I put a little G by the ones that were good kings. There's a few good kings um, that uh, reigned along the way. Uh, But the southern kingdom eventually, they fell into sin as well. They followed their northern brothers. They fell into sin as well. And when it got down to Zedekiah, the nation was finished, and God sent them into Babylon in captivity. But in 606, the, the captivity began. All right, the Babylonians came to Israel, and as you look at this littler map here, the B- Babylon way over there in Iran, or sorry, in Iraq, uh, Babylon and Iraq over here, and Iran's over here, and you got over here per, uh, Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, and then up in here you got Turkey, and down here you got Egypt. So this whole area belonged at, uh, to the Persians in the time of Esther. All right. But the, the northern, uh, southern kingdom were taken captivity, captive to Babylon. And during that time in Babylon, they spent 70 years in Babylon. Someone asked me this morning, well, pastor, you made a mention in your notes here that they were there for 120 years. Well, they were there for a lot longer than that. But actually, here's how it works out. They went into captivity in 606 B- B.C. 606 B.C., the, the first captives went. That's when Daniel was taken captive. Daniel was among the princes that were taken captive that first captivity. And the first return was in 336, 70 years later. And that's when they came back, Zerubbabel came back to start the temple. They started building the temple. It took them quite a while to build the temple. They finished it over here uh, several years later. The second group that went into captivity was in 597. That was when um, Ezekiel was taken captive with many of the others. Then the final, the, the nation crumbled, the, the city was captured, the temple was destroyed, the city walls were destroyed. In 586, Jerusalem was wiped out. And all the, the people had gotten so starving hungry, they were eating their babies, they were, they were just, it was a terrible time. And God 
broke up the city, and the Babylonians conquered them in 586, took them into captivity. Then, while they're in captivity, they, they, in, Cyrus, in 536, Cyrus, the king of Persia, out of the clear blue, said, I'm going to let Israel go free. And it was because of what God had said years earlier during the, uh, during the announcements of Isaiah. Let me see, I got Isaiah. Way back here, Isaiah prophesied that there would be a man, a king named Cyrus, that would let God's people go free. They hadn't even gone to captivity yet. But he said they were going to let them go free. So years later, they went into captivity, and then years later, Cyrus, out of the clear blue, says, I'm going to let them go free. And he let them all go, and they could. he said, anybody that wants to go back to Jerusalem, you can. And several of them did, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of them stayed there. They probably were settled in. It was a long journey. You know, you, you travel from Babylon all the way back to uh, Jerusalem. It was a long and dangerous journey. And a lot of them probably said, I just don't want to go through all the hassle. We might not even make it alive. It's, it's a dangerous journey. And who knows why, but a lot of them didn't go back. And so then the, as they were there in Babylon, we find Esther is about here, about 50 years after the temple was started. About 50 years after the people started going back to Jerusalem, we find Esther there. So from the time of Esther, from the time of the captivity began till the time of Esther was about 120 years. Long time. And then there was several more years before Ezra came back and taught the people and Nehemiah came back and built a wall way over here in 445. So there's a lot of things that are taking place. The temple wall had not been built yet. Uh, at Esther's time, uh, Ezra hadn't gone back to teach the people, but some of the people had gone back. For one reason or another, Esther didn't go back. Now, Esther, we're going to find out, was a young woman who was an orphan. Her parents were dead. Why? Who knows? Maybe it's possible that they were killed in the, in the siege. Possible, but this is quite a while afterwards, so I don't think so. Uh, they, but for one reason or another, her parents died. And she was raised by her cousin, her uncle's son. Raised her, named Mordecai. We'll be looking into that more as we dig into it. But as we look at the story, Esther chapter 1, I want to read a few verses to get us started. And then I want to just give you a, a paraphrase of the story so that you can see what it's all about and what, it's t- what is taking place here uh, throughout this first section here. So it starts in verse number 1. It says, Now it came to pass, in the days of Ahasuerus, this Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now let's stop there for a moment. Ahasuerus was his he- uh, Hebrew name. His Greek name was Xerxes. He had a Persian name, but it's too hard for me to say. <laughs> it was a big, long Persian name. All right? But this was Xerxes or Ahasuerus, and he reigned over 127 provinces. Now, those provinces, you, they were down in Egypt. He reigned over Egypt all the way down to Ethiopia, all the way over to India. All, right? so it was, he, all of Turkey, all of Egypt, all of Israel, all of Syria, all of uh, Iraq, which is what is today is Iraq and Iran and Pakistan and Afghanistan. He was over all of that, 127 provinces. He was a very, very powerful king and reigned over basically the inhabited world. And 
we read on in verse number two. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. All right, now Shushan, the palace. Babylon was here. Shushan was over uh, to the east a little bit more. Uh, but underneath this B on this Babylon name here. All right, so it was in that same area, but it was further to the east was Shushan. Shushan was one of his palaces that he had there. And it, <clears throat> he was in Shushan, the palace, when this story begins to take place. Now, as we think about this, we see in verses 3 uh, and onward that Ahasuerus decides to have a military party. I guess you could call it. He invites in, uh, verse number three, he says, in the third year, he made a feast unto all of his princes. All right, so those were his captains. And his servants, those are those that were under him, working for him. And the power of Persia and Media. All right, so all the military forces of Persia and Media were there. The nobles and princes of the provinces. So all these 127 provinces, all the nobles, all the princes or the captains in all of his realm were there at his party. And the party lasted for six months. And it was a long time. It was a feasting time. Now it emphasizes it was feasting, but historians believe that because of what took place after this event, it was very likely that it was a strategic planning time. They were planning for a military attack against Greece, which apparently didn't go over so well. Um, but they were planning during this time. So he had all this military leadership there with him for this feast for six months as they were working through and planning on and, and negotiating and planning all their strategies for these battles. But during this time, we see here in verse number four, that he showed his riches of his glorious kingdom and his honor and his excellence of, his, of the majesty all, many days, even a hundred and four score days. So this whole time here, he's bragging about his great kingdom. He's telling everybody what a wonderful guy he is. He's boasting about himself and really saying, you know, we can win this battle. We can beat the, uh, the Grecians. It'll be fine. Look at all the greatness we have and the great power we have. And he's bragging about himself. It was a time of boasting and bragging of, their, of himself there in his land. Now, as he, uh, as he was bragging about all these things, then after that time of, of uh, military bragging and feasting and all that they did there, then he had another feast. Look at the verse number five. And when these days were expired, all right, it was finished, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. All right, so everybody that was in the palace, all the palace workers, all the people in the palace were invited to his second feast. And this feast lasted seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. All right, so they're all there feasting. This time, this feast was more of a drunken brawl, really, is what it was. In verse 6 here, it says, and there, there was white and green and blue hangings, fastenings of cords of fine linen and purple, and silver rings and, and pillars of marbles, and, and the beds were of gold and silver, and they, uh, upon the pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. I mean, he had the place decked out. It was, it was all fancy. It was all plush. And he invited all the palace people in to have this party. And uh, they, they were drinking and getting drunk and just a wild orgy for seven days. And at the end of the seventh days, 
the king, in his drunken state, says, call for my wife Vashti to come in and show off her beauty. And Vashti says, I'm not going in with those a bunch of drunks and show off my beauty. And she didn't go. Well, that didn't go over so well. Right? The king gets infuriated. He's drunk and he's angry and he, he starts yelling and cursing and, and asking all of his advisors, what should we do about this problem? And some of the advisors said, well, king, listen, why don't you just get rid of Vashti? You know, just dishonor as your wife and get yourself a new wife, a new queen, one that will please you. Go, you know, well, let's just have a, a, have a, a, a contest of all the people of, of our great provinces and bring in all the most beautiful young women that, that you can find and have them all come in and we'll, we'll get them all as pretty as possible and we'll see, you can pick out the one you want. Now remember, we're not dealing with Christians here. These are a bunch of pagans. All right? And the things that they're doing here are not right, but they're just a bunch of pagans acting like a bunch of pagans. And so that's what he does. He says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So Vashti gets kicked out. She loses her position. And the king is determined then he's going to send letters through all the provinces and find himself a new wife that uh, will be a pretty young woman that will please him. So this is first, the first chapter. And you look at a chapter like this and you ask yourself, what in the world did God put that in the Bible for? Right. And sometimes we ask those kind of questions. And when you find something like that, it's important to dig into it. Why did God put that in the Bible? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, without this first chapter, you're really not going to understand the rest of the book very well. Right? So it is there to help us grasp the significance of everything else that's taking place in the book. If you didn't have this first chapter and, and know what had just taken place, then Queen Esther, well, how would she fit into all this? And it, it wouldn't really make sense. But another reason is, is I believe God placed things like this in there. God puts in the Bible not just good things for us to learn from, but he puts in bad things for us to learn from. All right? And we can learn from the vices of people that did things the wrong way. And here I find in this chapter four, at least four, there's probably more than this, but four vices. By vices I'm talking about Evil practices, evil deeds that we need to avoid in our lives. Four vices. Number one, as we look at this, we see that Ahasuerus was a very proud man. He was a very proud man. And, I mean, you know, it would be tough. Anytime we're put in a situation where we are in great power and great leadership, it's not easy to stay humble. Some of you have been in situations where you are in leadership and you have a lot of people working under you. It's not easy to stay humble. It's so easy to think, I'm, I've got some power here, you know, and, and you know, I'm pretty big and pretty big, strong. You know, we tend to be the way, and sometimes even if we don't have much power over things, we still get cocky and we think we're pretty good. All right? We struggle with pride. But Ahasuerus was a very proud man very powerful. He had a huge territory in which he reigned over. He has this, all these princes and who knows how many hundreds or thousands of princes he made, uh, princes and nobles and military leaders he had come into his six month long feast. Can you imagine feeding thousands of people for six months? 
I mean, he had the wealth. He had the money. He had the abilities. He had the place. So he did it. So he said, all these people in there for all this time, he's feeding them, caring for them. Nothing's mentioned in this first feast of any drunkenness or carrying on. There probably was some, but that's not the focus of the first feast. The first feast seems to be more of a military strategic feast. They're making plans. They're, they're meeting together. And, but he's still boasting and bragging about all that he has. And it, telling him how great of a kingdom he has here. In verse number four again, the, uh, told of his uh, glorious kingdom and it showed all of his riches and the honor of his excellent majesty. You can just see him pump, you know, strutting around and telling everybody how wonderful and great he is. Pride is always a vice that leads to problems. And the Bible gives us many examples of pride that has caused great problems for people. Some would stand out immediately in your mind, I'm sure, as well, if you've read the Bible very much. Nebuchadnezzar, just a few years before this event. You know, they're in Babylon, um, so we're here in Esther, but a few years earlier, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar was the king that conquered Jerusalem. And he was a mighty powerful man. And he was so proud. He was king over the world. He controlled everything. And he was very proud. And God sent Daniel to him and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change your ways and humble yourself or you're going to be in big trouble with God. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Oh, I'm so sorry. No, not at all. He just carried on like nothing happened at all. And he kept on strutting around and bragging about himself until one day he said, look at this great kingdom that I have. And he was struck. And God struck him and made him insane for seven years. For seven years, he ate grass like an ox. His fingernails grew long and his hair was matted. He was out there in the fields of a wild, insane man that everybody was afraid of. God had mercy on him because during the the end of that seven years, Nebuchadnezzar came to himself and he said, I understand now, Jehovah God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I humble myself before him. And God forgave him and gave him another chance. Gave him back his mind and Nebuchadnezzar came back to the throne. Amazing. God did a wonderful work, but he had to humble him first. Pride is a terrible curse. In that same vein, his grandson, Belshazzar, you'd think he would have learned from Grandpa, but no, not Belshazzar. Belshazzar's proud and cocky. Now he's the king. He's, he's actually, from what you read and study it, if you dig into that, it appears that Belshazzar was a co-regent. Uh, his father was actually the king, uh, but he was the co-regent because his father was a military man like being out with the military all the time. And so he put his son in charge. And that's why Belshazzar promises to make whoever could read the writing on the wall to make him the third ruler of the kingdom. Dad was first, he was second, and then this other guy would be the third ruler of the kingdom. Well, anyway, Belshazzar is having a drunken feast and he says, Oh, let's go get those old vessels of gold and silver that we brought from Jerusalem's temple and let's drink out of them. What a fool. 
And he has them go get him, and they bring him in there, fill him up with all their booze, and they're in there drinking and cursing God and laughing and mocking God. And God came down and he wrote a, had a hand of a man right on the wall and said, said, Mene, Mene, you, you, uh, you farce and something. I remember the exact words of it. And he said, Your days are numbered. Nobody could read it. Finally, Daniel came in. He called in Daniel and said, Oh, Daniel, the old prophet, can you possibly read this? And Daniel said, I'll read it for you. But it's not good. Your days are numbered. You're going to die. And that night, Belshazzar died. And the Persians conquered the land. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans then were finished. And the Persians conquered the land. His pride ruined him. Go back earlier than this, way back in the days of David. When David was a young man, Goliath came out to fight. Remember, Goliath stood out there on the mountainside and said, Hey, who's willing to come out and fight me? You kill me, we'll all be your servants. But if I kill you, <laughs> then you'll be our servants. And everybody ran in fear. Until David came. David said, I'll go fight him. And then he said, you got to be kidding. You're just a kid. You can't go fight him. And David wasn't a little five-year-old boy. He was probably a young man of early 20s. But he wasn't a military man. And David said, I'll fight him. And David went out and fought him with his slingshot. And put a stone right through his forehead. And Goliath fell down dead. And David took his glass sword and cut off his head. The battle was conquered. Why? Because his pride had ruined him. Goliath was a man of pride. And it brought him down. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was a man of pride. And when Moses went to see Pharaoh and said, God, Jehovah said, let my people go. What did Pharaoh say? Who is God that I should obey him? I don't know Jehovah. Well, he did by the time the story was done. God had sent ten plagues. The blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the murrain, the boils, the light, hail, the locusts, the darkness, and the firstborn. He wiped out Egypt. And that wasn't enough. Pharaoh said, we're not going to let those people go. we got to go get them. Come on, Army, let's go get them. And they chased them across the, until they got to the Red Sea and the people of Israel got it, opened up the Red Sea and led them across on dry land and the Pharaoh said, let's go get them. If they can go across, we can go across. And they got halfway across and God said, shut the water. Just like that. The water shut down on them and Pharaoh and his army was wiped out. Pride. Pride is destructive. Get a New Testament example of Peter. Peter the Cocky disciple. So much like us. Jesus said, one of you are going to deny me tonight. Peter said, Lord, I will never deny you. I will die before I deny you. Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny, or twice, you're going to deny me thrice. Peter said, no, I won't. That night, Christ was arrested. Peter standing by the fire, terrified out of his skin. Somebody says, hey, weren't you one of them? No, I don't know him. I don't know I don't know this guy. Three times Peter denies that he even knew Jesus Christ. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter thought, rooster, oh no. He looked over at Jesus and Jesus looked right at him. 
And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why? Pride. Folks, we struggle with pride. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16 18, he said, Pride goeth before destruction, and haughty spirit before fall. Both James and Peter tell us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word resist there means to set up a military campaign against. I don't know about you, but I don't want God having a military campaign against me. I've got enough problems of my own. But to have God actually working against you? God said, if you're proud, he says, God resists the proud. He says he works against the proud. We don't want that. Pride is a major problem. Obviously, since God resists the proud, we need to work at conquering pride. But how can we do that? Let me give you five suggestions that can help us. We need to focus on God's greatness compared to us. Folks, we get so cocky. We get so thinking, aren't I a great person? Aren't I talented? Don't I have some power? Don't I have some abilities? And God's sitting up thinking, come on. You've got nothing that I haven't given you. And compared to God... We are nothing. God is mighty. We need to focus on the greatness of God. Sing that song, How Great Thou Art. Memorize that song. Page number 40 in your songbook. Memorize that song. Sing it to yourself. How great thou art. And remember that you're nothing compared to God. That will help us with our pride. We need to also, number two, remember that we will all We all come from God. All that we have comes from God. Whatever abilities you have, you got them from God. And if God decides to take them away, he can do that. You can be strong and mighty. God could strike you down with a stroke or a heart attack tomorrow and you could be done. Or you could be crippled. And so could I. We have no control. God is in control. He is strong and everything we have comes from God. We need to, number three, stop glorying in our achievements. We live in a world that people are just so enamored with glorying. Aren't I great? You watch the sports things and those guys, they, they kick one goal and they prance around like they're King Tut, you know, aren't I wonderful? Whoa, 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 wasn't I great? And the kids do the same thing. Not a good thing. We allow that stuff, and what it's doing is it's promoting pride. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting excited when you win a bowl game. I, I understand. I like playing bowl games. But we need to be careful not to glory in our achievements, glorying in our success, glorying in our, our, our uh, academic credentials or glorying in our promotions at work or glorying we need to be careful because they will bring us down stop glorying in those things when proud we need to confess it as sin to God we need to come to God and say God my stinking pride is sinful would you please help me to conquer it it's wrong it's not right for me to be proud Lord, help me to conquer it. Just come to God honestly, begging Him for help. 
And then focus on others more than on ourselves. Pride is all focusing on ourselves. Aren't I great? Aren't I strong? I'm, I'm so awesome. No, focus on others. How can I be a blessing to others? Instead of focusing on how can I get, we need to, what can I do to give? It'll help us. So those are just five little things that can help us. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to conquer your pride overnight. It won't. But you can work at it. With God's help, you can get victory over these things. Pride is something that I struggle with, and you probably do too. But we find back to our story here. Old Ahasuerus, he's had this feast. And his second feast comes along, and it's a drunken feast. And here we find a second vice of drinking. He's, Ahasuerus had been seven days in this drunken orgy, and they were, he was boasting of his prosperity and boasting of all the luxuries and the beauty and all the things that they had around him, all these fine linens and the purples and the silver and the gold and the marble, and oh, look at all the stuff we have. During that festival, he got so drunk that he asked for his wife to come in and show off her beauty. We don't know. Nothing said. Text doesn't give us any indications. Was he asking her to be immodest? Who knows? He may have not been doing anything more than just say, put on your fanciest dress and come in here and show us all your pretty beauty. And she might have thought, I don't want to go in there and show off in front of a bunch of drunks. I don't know what took place. Was Vashti in the right or wrong? I don't know. That's another story that God will have to settle. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is, he was drunk. You know, alcohol is always a vice. It's never a virtue. Never. God warned us in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drinkers raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23:31 says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it gives itself in the, uh, moves itself in the cup, when it gives, sorry, look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. God said, don't even look at it. Now, my personal conviction is, is that we ought to abstain from alcohol completely. Now, you may not hold my same position on abstinence. That's between you and God. But, whether you agree with this or not, you cannot deny that drinking dulls the senses and it opens the door to many embarrassments and problems. You cannot deny that. That is an absolute fact. Alcohol has done more harm to marriages, children, families, and relationships than we could ever know. I have never known anyone to become more virtuous because of alcohol. Never. Drinking alcohol will never make you more godly. Alcohol is a vice that I believe we ought to avoid. It's got all kinds of problems with it. But then that brings us to another thing. Ahasuerus wears here, the king proud and Haughty, he's drunk, he's, he's, now he calls for his wife. He asks, he does something that's inappropriate. He calls for his wife to come in and show off her beauty to everybody. Now, that's not appropriate even if he wasn't drunk. 
That's not appropriate in any situation to say, my wife is so beautiful. She's the most beautiful person I've ever met. I want her to come in and prance in here in front of us and just, just take a look at her beauty. Isn't she a doll? Woo-hoo, look at my dear wife. No woman with any kind of modesty would want to do that in front of a bunch of men to show off her beauty. That's not the right thing to do. That's an inappropriate thing to ask. Whether he was asking for something immodest or not, we don't know, and that's neither here nor there, but he was asking something that was not appropriate. It wasn't appropriate. Men ought to have more love and respect for their wives than to ask them to do something like that. A husband who truly loves his wife would never command her to do that type of thing and would never dream of trading her for another woman because she didn't want to please him. But that's exactly what Ahasuerus does. Being inappropriate is always wrong. And no doubt the drinking involved here was a huge influence on his inappropriateness. I, you know, I'm sure of that. But there's so many things that can be inappropriate in our lives. And folks, listen. We all face Things like this. Immodesty. Immorality. Harshness. Flirting. Sexting on the medias. Intimate talking with others of the opposite gender. Being alone with one of the opposite gender. Unkindness. Name-calling. Abuse. Neglect of duty. The list goes on and on. Things are just aren't appropriate. And yet they're becoming popular and common. Maybe not popular, but common in our society. Things are just aren't right. We need to be careful about the inappropriateness that we could be involved in. You know, the Bible contains many examples of both inappropriate and appropriate conduct. Some of the best places to go for in the Bible to find instruction on appropriateness is the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is an awesome book. It's a book that is full of all kinds of principles and and helps that will help you to make right, wholesome, honorable choices in life. In the New Testament, a couple of chapters that really stand out with a lot of helpful information is Ephesians 4 and 5, Colossians 3, Romans 12. There's a lot of chapters in the New Testament that have good stuff in them. But the Bible is full of examples of the right and the wrong conduct for us to do. And we need to look for what is appropriate. Because inappropriate activities will hurt and harm and damage and sometimes even get us into major troubles if we're not careful. We need to be appropriate. We find that the fourth vice, the king we find in, in uh, verse number 13, no, verse number 12. It says, and the, 
And the queen Vashti refused to come to the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which, were, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew the law and judgments. And the next unto him was all these guys here with all their big names. And uh, so he says, he called all these guys in and said, what should we do? Now one of the things is I, I underlined in my Bible. See there in verse number 14 toward the end it says, which saw the king's face. Now that's an important phrase. What did that mean? Not everybody get to see the king's face. You couldn't just knock on the palace door and say, I want to talk to the king today. Not a chance. That would be like knocking on one of the parliament buildings and saying, I want to talk to the prime minister today. The chances of you talking to him are about zero. The same thing with the king. You're not going to get in to see the king's face. But these were guys that saw the king's face all the time. They were his nobles. They were the ones that were his close friends, the close contacts. These were the guys that were close to him. And he says, what should we do? And these guys are a bunch of pagans too. They said, well, they'll ditch your wife and find another pretty girl. Well, that's fine. That's easy. And that wasn't good advice. But here he's, the king's angry. He's fuming. He's upset. Of course, the drunkenness didn't help matters any. It made him more angry. And we all know, you know, you can always tell when one of the neighborhoods uh, having a party and they start getting drunk because what happens? They always start getting loud and they start yelling and they're screaming and somebody, why? Because they can't control themselves. The alcohol has messed up their thinking and they get out of control. But the anger, once again, the king here is out of control. He's angry and making wrong choices. You know, human anger is seldom if ever, right. I know some people say, well, what about righteous anger? Well, you stop and think about it. The chances of that are so slim that it's almost not a possibility. When we think about anger, if you are an angry person, it is never true to say, that's just the way I am. That's not right. You might better truthfully say, that's just the way I've became. Because anger is something we learn. Oh yeah, it's a part of our sinful nature. But it's something we learn. Angry people are angry people because they've been angry kids and they've been angry teenagers and they've been angry people all their lives because no one ever got them, straightened them out. That's why it's so important that children be disciplined, and the anger be quashed in children before they become adults. If children do not learn to control their anger calmly and calm down when they're children, they'll never control it. They'll just continue to be angry people. The book of James, chapter 1, verse number 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Our anger is never going to make, produce righteousness. It doesn't work that way. God commands Christians in Colossians 3, 8. He says, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. He says, put it away. It's not to be part of the Christian's life. We're not to be angry people. 
You say, but Pastor, it was so hard when people pushed all the buttons. I know, I know, I know. I've had problems with anger, and I still struggle with anger. I have to keep working on anger. I understand. But it can be quashed, and it can be pushed down, and it can be controlled with God's help. But it's not easy. It is a struggle. So I'm not saying, hey, it's a, you know, super easy, you know, come on, get with it. No, I understand, it's hard. If you struggle with anger, we need to admit it, ask the Lord to help us overcome it, and consciously guard ourselves. One of the things that I found the most helpful for me is to not allow myself to get irritated to begin with. Irritation is the catalyst that ignites anger. Irritation is when we, oh, the books are when they do that. No, I didn't get mad yet. But I'm already getting fired up. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I, if I allow that to happen, it isn't long until it's out of control and then I get angry. You gotta stop it. Nip it in the bud. Don't let the irritations irritate us. Just give it to God. Let God take care of it. And let God help us to overcome. We need to consciously guard ourselves and work at it. So we've seen four vices. Old King Ahasuerus, not a believer. Vashti was not a believer. They were a bunch of pagans. They were, they were Persian people that didn't know anything about God. They were not believers, but God gives them to us for an example to teach us the bad parts of four different vices. We need to guard ourselves against these vices. The vice of pride. The vice of drinking. The vice of inappropriateness. And the vice of anger. And so this morning I challenge you to look into your life and ask God to help you if any of these vices are common in your daily life, to ask God to help you to conquer them. You know, for a long time, folks, I remember, I remember exactly where I was. I was on a walk one day just a few years ago. I don't know, maybe five years ago. I was walking up Baltimore and I was praying about these things and problems and some of the things in my character I just didn't like and I knew weren't right. And I just, Lord, I've prayed about this so many times. Why don't you just take it away? And then God opened my eyes to see God is not going to send down fire from heaven and zap me and suddenly, whew, I'm not angry anymore. I'm not proud anymore. This is awesome. God took it all away. It's not going to happen that way. It never will. never has. You can't expect that. You don't get zapped into being all that you ought to be. It takes work. Now, God's not saying you have to do it all or I have to do it all, but we have to be the ones that are willing. When we come to God and say, God, I have an anger problem. God, I have a pride problem. I need your help, God. I know it is wrong. It is sinful. It is wicked. It displeases you. It's ruining my life. It's causing problems. God, I am wicked and wrong in that. I'm not making any excuses, God. I want you to take it away. And I will do whatever you want, help me to do to be able to conquer this. 
We've got to make the first step. We've got to beg God for help. And then we've got to get our shoes on and get in there and work at it. Because God will give us strength, but he's not going to send you a zap from heaven to get you all better. It won't happen that way. And I think, I know for years, I kept thinking, God, when are you going to zap me and get rid of all these problems? God said, I'm never ever going to do that. And I'm thinking, and then when it dawned on me, I thought, no wonder. No wonder it doesn't just go away. Because it's not God's zap that's going to do it. It's God helping me to apply myself and do what's right. So, folks, this morning, I challenge you. Look at these vices. If you've got an issue in your life where you know you need to deal with some of these things, give it to God. Ask God to help you. Ask him to give you strength and victory. And trust him to give you the grace to work on it.